we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we're here for your entertainment value. Yes, that's true. We're here because we have no other lives. We're stuck in a box. Well, it's a house. And I was going to say, Dan, don't talk about my real estate offerings. Hey, hey, yes, there are plenty of boxes available everywhere. I fought that hobo fair and square. Oh. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. That's what happens when you bring a golf club to a fight. With that said, uh, we're going to move forward to talk about what our topic for tonight is. We've really been talking about games a lot. We had our GM seminar. We had our players conference. And now we're going to focus in on mechanics a little bit, primarily with role-playing mechanics, but these mechanics can also focus on game design as well as, as board game mechanics. With that said, uh, let's jump into the importance and misconceptions of game mechanics. I have played in many groups where you have had the rules lawyer, the guy that it has to be by the book. If it's not by the book, you're failing. Then there's the other type of person, which I don't really think has a name. Yet, maybe we'll create a name tonight. <laughs> this is the person that just doesn't care about rules. They have thrown the book out. They have buried it in the backyard, and they've said, I'm just going to wing it. I don't know what to call that person. Jordan with an umlaut over the O and a Y instead of an A on the second half. <laughs> um, I was going to call them the 50-50 because the that's 50/50. about the, ra- the ratio of fun to not fun. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't call him by his given name. He doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> the <ratio>? nonsense. <laughs> I love that too. The ratio player. You know, this is the weird thing. Most people are when they play role playing and they play games, they're in the middle ground. But you do have a few that are the rules lawyer or the fifty fifty, the fitty fitty guy. I don't know what we want to call him yet. I still like uh, fitty nonsense. Fitty nonsense. <laughs> fitty nonsense. Okay, we're we're making it. Fitty nonsense. Whoop. Yeah, copyrighted. No. But this is the thing that's really weird. I don't know where this misconception came from, where to play a game, it has to be exactly by the rules. If you go out there, no one is playing Uno exactly the way the rules state. (laughs) Or Monopoly. Or Battleship, for that matter. Yeah. I'm just going to pose this question. When you're playing Uno, if someone lays down a card that's identical to yours, it's a red two, and you have a red two in your hand, do you slap it down and call it good? Now, I I don't mean to insert myself too strongly here, but I've played a number of games of Uno in my day, okay? Yes, you have. I've heard you're a gamer. Yeah, and how many of you played Uno and someone plays a draw two or a draw four? And if you have a draw two, you stack that and you keep going around until someone doesn't. Yep, I've played it that way before. However, according to Uno and their rules, and this is what they put on their website, that is not in their rule. That's how people play it. They enjoy it that way. But officially, if we were to all have a rules lawyer in our house, we couldn't play Uno that way. Similarly, in the game of Battleship, many people play it such that if you score a hit, you go again. And you keep going until you miss. If your ship is sunk, despite what the commercial does, most people either don't say anything at all, or they'll say, ah, you sank one of my ships, and then you move on. I've given the assignment of coding battleships, so I've seen the rules many times. Yeah. In the rules itself, you alternate no matter what. Success or failure doesn't matter. You keep alternating. And when a ship is sunk, you tell them which ship they yep. sunk. And in the original rules, when you get hit, you tell them what ship was hit. So you're giving them all sorts of intel in the original rules. And, and almost no one plays that way now. If I remember right, if you sink the battleship, game over, correct? I, I think the original rules have always been you have to destroy the fleet. All right. Yeah. 
but it is dramatically fun to say. Yes. You say you say And the battleship's not even like the biggest ship. The carrier's the biggest ship. Yeah. But the battleship is the name of the game, right? I believe there's a Star Wars version of Battleship, and I want to get it just so I can play like the Rebels. And when one of my ships get hit, have like Akbar's voice on some sort of soundboard. It's a trap. I have a Serenity Firefly Yahtzee where the nice. roller is the ship. I would love a battleship made out of brown coats and blue sun. Ooh. Yeah, I have a Yahtzee game that is a Doctor Who one, and the the thing is the the TARDIS. Is the so, cup bigger on the inside? Oh yeah. Sometimes I lose the dice in there. It takes days. So when we apply that to role playing, I mean, how does being that rules lawyer, how does that, in your guys' opinion, affect the gameplay? Having someone in the group, being that guy that constantly is throwing out the book, slamming it down and saying, nope, that's not how that goes. That's a great question because, you know, we we made fun of fitting nonsense a moment ago, but rules lawyering can kind of go both ways too. When you're talking about game design, whether it's RPG or board game or video game, there is at the risk of sounding a tad sterile here, there is a science to fun. We just talked about Uno and Battleship, and and we we touched briefly on Monopoly, but we want to stay friends, so we're not going to talk about that. And (laughs) having a rules lawyer around sometimes can be handy when you're looking for expedition of adjudication, where you want to follow the rules and someone knows the rules and you can lean on them a bit so that things go faster, you don't have to look them up, that sort of thing. However, The reason that so many house rules exist across so many classic games is because the original creators tried to come up with a balanced game and they did the best they could. But then other people either came up with ideas the creator did not or found ways to improve the fun. And so just like we were talking about Uno and Battleship, the reason people play it the way they play it now is because it's more fun than the original creation in many people's eyes. And so having a rules lawyer around can get in the way of having increased fun through creativity, but they can also be there to shore up the rules and to protect the balance of the game in the case where you have too many fitting nonsense. I completely agree with you on all of those points. We actually see that a lot of the digital versions of these games that are coming out are starting to incorporate a lot of those house rules and turn them into official parts of the game, even if they aren't necessarily the tournament rules. And in fact, as we look through the history of games, we see this consistent pattern happening over and over and over again. And interestingly enough, that's part of the reason that D&D ultimately had multiple editions. When the very first rules for D&D came out, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax put them together as best as they could, and they started to produce these supplements, and they started to refer to tables that they were intending on creating, and before too long, those tables didn't exist. They became outdated as they realized there were better ways to do things, and ultimately, the very first edition of Dungeons & Dragons is actually an incomplete game. It required people to create house rules. It required people to read between the lines and come up with their own solutions. And it was actually a major source of contention in the role-playing game community at that time as to whether or not there should be one set of rules. And ultimately, the decision was made to create advanced Dungeons & Dragons specifically to be able to mitigate some of those problems and bring all of the most popular rules into one space now that they'd had more time to experiment with this new form of fantasy role-playing game anyway. Yeah, look at one of the biggest worlds that was created out of that. We have Forgotten Realms. And that really was a brainchild of Ed Greenwood. He created that entire thing and then that got picked up by them and then that exploded from there. But that was pretty much fan fiction in a way and his own house rules. 
I like the fact that there's enough rules so that you have a game system you can use, but it's so open and diverse that you can go on from there and create your own world, your own rule system using that basic code per se. You know, how many video games are out there that are built on the Unreal Engine? That was built decades ago at this point, but it's been tweaked, it's been improved. There are still games out there that we love and enjoy that are built on that code, that are built on that engine. And I feel like that's the same thing that we have here with role-playing. 3.5 came, it went, but then Pathfinder picked it up and they've used it. Other game systems have used that D20 system, but they've put their own little flavor and twist and tweaks to it. You know, the name of the game in game design is about balance. We've talked about this previously, of course, but over the years, I have made many, many mistakes and I've had many successes when being a GM. And when I look back at all that and aggregate the data, what I've discovered and and what many great game designers knew way before I figured it out is that there must always be jeopardy. There must always be risk, which means there must always be a way to lose. You can't just auto magically win every time. Akin to that is that there must always be a way to succeed. Now, I say those very strongly, but there is a concept that if you make a series of choices so poorly, you eventually get to a point where there just is no bailing out. Or if you roll dice so exquisitely, there's almost no way to stop you, right? You're a juggernaut. And those nights happen. But in terms of just designing the opportunity, there must always be an opportunity to lose. There must always be an opportunity to win. And there must be reasonable reward compared to the risk. And if you do those things, no matter what game you're playing, it could be Pandemic, which is a very challenging board game, or Zombicide, which is a great cooperative board game against the apocalypse, or Uno, or Solitaire. You're playing against the game, right? As well as video games, RPGs, there must always be this consummate proportionate relationship between the risk and the reward. And you must be able to lose and you must be able to win. When you have a rules lawyer in the room, The risk there is that you lose the joy of the journey because they start to hamper the cool. I'm reminded of Alton's rule of cool, right? They start hampering the rule of cool. But the flip side of that, it's a pendulum, right? The fitty nonsense get in there and they find every rule to break such that they can't lose. And that also ruins the game. And that's really the thing is the foundation of any game is mitigation of risk. It is playing against some form of randomization, the most controllable in quotes of which is going to be a single opponent in a situation in which both of you have limited moves. But even in that case, if you give an opponent a choice, that is fundamentally randomization, which is what D&D is based upon. People get bored of tic-tac-toe really, really quickly once you figure out all of the ideal moves. And it's because at that point, the risk mitigation is now no longer can I outwit my opponent, it's who gets to play first who gets to place first. And so we see, even in situations where we believe we're playing solo games, whether it's solitaire, whether it's a word cross or a Sudoku, what we are doing is mitigating some form of risk, whether that's racing against the clock or against our own inhibitions. And so when we do start to get into role-playing games, that was precisely where the gold, silver, and bronze rules of storytelling came up. Because once you begin to play role-playing games, You're introducing elements above and beyond simple numbers management. Now, some of the risks that you're mitigating are story risks. It's the way that you're evolving the game, the way that you're evolving the adventure, and how players are able to interact with the world around you. I really like that you brought up the um, Arnis and Gygax issue. It's one of those things where I don't think they knew 
how much they impacted the world, or I don't think they could have known how much they impacted the world until there was hindsight, sufficient hindsight. Yeah. And we could have a whole episode on how they changed the face of the world of gaming and the world in general, but that's another time. What I want to point out, though, is that D&D won that they dropped, and then later on had to drop a D&D. I think just by sheer fortune of coincidence, they introduced the concept of, if it's not fun for you, alter it. Every great RPG somewhere in the book encourages you, the GM, the DM, the storyteller, to manipulate the rule set such that you're having a good time. If a rule doesn't make sense in the context that you're in, if you want to allow for some miracle divine intervention or some terrible thing to occur that normally the rules would not support, the rules ultimately support you changing the rules. Yeah. And I think that was sort of accidentally discovered flubber-like when Arneson and Gygax launched an incomplete D&D. It became requisite that we filled in the blanks. One of the great things that I have had access to for you know almost a decade now is I've been able to play games with a lot of classic game designers. And one of the consistent things that I find is whenever game designers sit down to play a game, no matter how poorly or how well the rule set is written, no matter how wonderfully the game plays or not, inevitably at some point over the course of the night comes a discussion about either a play or a rule that's misunderstood or what if we just tweaked this a little and did this instead? As I sit and play, even in my own home or with my in-laws, consistently we pull out our own little home kits of supplementary rules or a quick start or whatever else to help us play some of these beefier, heavier games. And fundamentally, I believe that that is why you have the Fitty Nonsense and the Rules Lawyer, is because both of these people are mitigating risk, but they're mitigating risk in different ways because yeah. the way that they interpret fun is different. For a rules lawyer, they want everything to be predictable, reduce the number of variables. For fitty nonsense, as we're calling them, they want to be able to always have a chance to catch up, always get ahead, and be able to watch the craziness unfold in front of them. And both of those things are good. And that is why fundamentally we developed the gold and silver and bronze rules of storytelling, because it enables you to adapt to the environment in which you exist. And so just to repass so that everybody knows where we're coming from, if you haven't seen our previous episodes, please go back and listen to them. The golden rule of storytelling is, it is your job to make sure that the players have a good time. The silver rule of storytelling is you will bend and or break the rules as necessary to ensure the players have a good time. And the bronze rule of storytelling is if the players are telling a cooler story than the one you have prepared, tell their story instead. And this fundamental credo, I promise you, is going to take you way farther with your games. You're going to have a much better time and much happier players if you understand that fundamental concept that it's a game and people are here to have fun. And fun means different things to different players. So if you are interacting with your players dynamically and adjusting to the situations as they happen, everyone is going to come back and play again and again and again and again. I was just telling Elton before the start of the show that I've been GMing for nearly 30 years now. Those rules are so concise and they are so true. I've been doing a family RPG night and we had this big boss fight and it took us three different nights to play because the kids, you know, they're eight and five. And then my son, who's five, when it comes to the role playing part, he has no interest in it. Then it comes to combat and he's been silent the whole game. And then it's like, okay, son, Nalik, his character name, it's your turn. And here's what the Hydra is doing. Big boss fight. What do you do? He's swinging ahead at you like a tentacle. What do you do? And then my five year old looks me dead in the eye and he goes, I want to flip over the back of his head, draw my rifle and shoot him while I'm still in the air. When I land, I want to grab my katana draw it and get ready for the next slash and i'm like who are you 
what just happened? It was the coolest thing. Now, in my GM head, having done this system for so long, I'm thinking, well, that's too many actions, and that's going to cut into your attacks per melee, and that's going to – and then, like, at, at first, at first, I was going to kibosh it. And then I stopped myself, and I'm like, no, 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 no. This violates the rule of cool. The story he's telling is way cooler than the system would normally allow. He's five years old. I'm going to allow it. And it was the coolest battle to fight this massive hydra with my wife, my eight-year-old daughter, and my five-year-old son because I followed those three rules. That's one of the fundamental misunderstandings of what the community colloquially refers to as rule zero, which is that the GM or the DM has the right to override any rule for any reason at any time. A lot of beginning GMs view that as a way to enforce their will on the game and try to keep things under control. To screw their players, to be frank, when they're junior GMs. Absolutely. And, And while sometimes, not always, usually very rarely, it is appropriate to exercise that, the much better, more concise scalpel that that rule really needs to be is to cut out the crap to enable players to do the thing. Do the needful, as some of my friends say. If you can help your players to get to that next step and have the emotional energy to continue on in the adventure, your adventure is going to turn out much cooler. And then you can feed the vitamin pills of the rules one at a time as they need to learn how to interact with the system. I feel like your three rules are sort of like the three commandments, if you will, or like the three laws. I have a couple corollaries that I throw in there, like the players should not be trying to outplay the GM and the GM should not be trying to defeat the players. I like that we have the golden rules. We have gold, silver and bronze. But now that uh, we have established those and in the realm of D&D, we need to come up with a platinum and an electrum rule set. No, um, no. (laughs) I mean, you've hit it on the head. When it comes to the rules lawyer, it's great that they have that capability. They know the rules, but it is important that they're not trying to outplay the GM. That's the key thing. And to keep it fun. If they're there to say, hey, the rule reads this way, but depends on what the GM says, that's okay. I think that's fair. They have that knowledge. Great. If they can help the GM out, even better, especially if they're a junior GM, but they got to let the GM tell the story. And at the same time, the GM, it's all about fun. You don't want to enforce your will upon someone. How many times has that been a success for you in your life? When you have tried to enforce what you want upon someone else, does it normally work out well? You will lose the support of your group quicker than quick. I mean, they'll, they'll be out the door and you will be looking for a new group to play with. I think those are critical. So I know both of you have a lot of experience as GMs and DMs. And so I'm kind of curious, what are some of the ways that you interact with mechanics, especially when you realize that a rule has been forgotten or has been being used incorrectly? How do you help to steer your players back onto the correct path without throwing a cinder block in the middle of the game and stopping everything? Well, I mean, what I have done, I'll read over it and go, okay, we're going to finish out this fight. We're going to keep it how it is. But from this point forward, we're going to be going as the rule states this way. Or there are some times I'm just like, you know, I like the way we're doing it better. We're just going to keep it. And it's going to stay that way the rest of the time we play this campaign. But it stays that way. Uh, No matter which way we choose, it stays that way for the rest of the time we play. Yeah, I I agree with that. That that's mostly my approach as well. I think the real question, and again, this reflects the rules, but uh, the the golden rule. But the question becomes: Does retconning the rule upon discovery benefit the player slash the experience? If it's beneficial to retcon, and if it's not difficult to retcon, 
with you know without completely turning the world topsy turvy. By the way, for those who may not be familiar with that term, it stands for retroactive continuity. So you can basically rewind time a la Prince of Persia, Sands of Time style, and then you change the choices that are made or you change the adjudication and then you you go back into full swing. If it's beneficial to the experience, if it brings joy to the group, do it. Otherwise, I have been in situations like Dan described where it's like retconning doesn't make sense or it would be way too expensive in terms of overhead to make it happen and it would destroy the flow of the game. It's okay where we're at right now. We'll just improve going forward. That's also acceptable. And I also agree with sort of the, uh, again, if it, if it improves the experience, that sly moment where you can look at your players and be like, almost bluff a little bit and be like, oh, I know. That's just not how it works this time. And they're like, oh, you know, and then they get like really surprised. It becomes this new twist, this new intrigue. That's absolutely what I do when I'm in the middle, especially if it's a boss battle. And I realize I've misread a stat block or something was supposed to work and I've been doing it too easy on the players. I will let my players know at the end of round, uh, just so that you know, the the boss is leveling up. So be ready. Things are going to be hitting harder. Right. And you can wrap it. You can wrap it in all kinds of hyperbole and you can give it all kinds of flavor and you can be like you see the glow emanating from his hands and you watch as his muscles swell or whatever it is. Right. You can really crank that sucker up to 11 and just milk it for everything it's worth, because that is going to help your players be more invested in what's coming. Because it shows that you are conscious of their experience and it enables this change to be an additive thing instead of something that's taking away from what's happening. Well, I mean, yeah, especially on a boss fight, you could twist that and weave it in such a way that adds to the story. There have been times where, yeah, I've forgotten something and it's, it's like the room just starts thrumming with energy and power. It is so oppressive on you and you watch as the dragon just doubles in size and i've had players just like uh what just happened and i'm like somehow you guys just broke the seal and now the dragon is at full power their characters are wetting their pants they have this shock of like oh crap the training wheels are gone uh what do we do (laughs) yeah and then they start thinking they start digging in and they start pulling together which sometimes is a good catalyst sometimes you have groups where they're doing okay together but when Life or death is thrown at them with about their characters. There is something that happens with the group that just solidifies and they dig in. And then you see guys like one guy is attacking and then you see the other people like, OK, what are you going to do? I'm going to do this. You know, and they're trying to compound their abilities so that they can do as much damage as they can to get rid of this thing quickly. And it, it's really cool to see that when that happens, because not that it's not cool when they're working together beforehand. But it's just really cool because, you know, if they screw up once, someone's going to die. And they know that. So then here's the next question, Dan. Mm -hmm. Same scenario, but flip the power. The boss has been whomping on your players. Yeah. And you realize that you've accidentally overpowered or maybe even it's just a series of bad rolls or whatever it may be. How do you handle that situation? That one's a hard one because I like the threat being there if i'm being really good at rolling a certain night i really hate to pull back on that one it's the luck of the dice that night and there have been days where i was rolling i mean i was playing a player and i was also rolling for the the enemies and man i was rolling critical hits like crazy 
for the enemies, and I couldn't hit worth crap for myself. It was the weirdest thing. I was using the same dice. It's not like I was using a different set of dice. And it got to a point where everyone was like, can we have someone else roll for the enemies? But I, I really don't want to pull back on that. Can you explain why you didn't want to pull back on that one? Because it's it's very random. You know, at any moment, the dice can change. When it comes to a monster or a creature that I have set up too powerfully, I overestimated the player level. Maybe I overestimated its abilities and it's too rough for the characters. There will be some sort of interaction. There'll be some sort of divine intervention, I guess. Now, it's not going to completely destroy the, the monster or whatever they're facing. But there will be something that will help alleviate that so I can at least take that off the table. Uh, there was a time that I had a player group that was fighting against a demon. It was a Gabrazu. It was very strong. It was really powerful. The group was not quite prepared for it. They were getting their butts kicked. I didn't want it to end. I could tell that the fun was draining from them. There was an instant, I can't remember the exact thing, but some sort of chain got dislodged from the cavern wall that was holding something up and it got wrapped around this demon trapped one set of its arms the giant pincer arm so it only had the smaller arms available it reduced its effectiveness as far as being this killing machine it didn't completely negate it but it did reduce enough that they were finally able to get some momentum to defeat it i eventually took the chain away as that momentum built but it was enough of a break that they were able to kind of snap out of that self-defeating mentality and find a way to use what they had to fight it. And it helped to whittle it down because it wasn't dealing massive damage towards them. That Those are all excellent. Um, for me, I have three major approaches in this order. It breaks down to organic fudge deus ex machina. And yep. actually, I do my best to avoid the last one as much as possible because yes. it's just it's too campy. Earlier, we, we said there has to always be risk. There has to be a way to lose. The moment you introduce deus ex machina, any sense of jeopardy goes away. And, and that goes away for a long time, even in, in future scenarios. So first, organic. And I actually did this with the Hydra with my family just a couple days ago. The Hydra is, if you play the Palladium system, I'm going to use some terms here, but don't worry about it too much. It's a large mega damage magic creature. It's a form of dragon. The player group has a smaller dragon and two Atlanteans. In truth, the Hydra has way more power, way more ability, and way, way more health than they do. So organically, I like to do the following. I will either reduce the health, which I did. I actually cut the health in half for the sake of the speed of the game. And they were only level two anyway, these these characters. And so it didn't make sense to give them a full-size Hydra. And then the other organic thing I like to do is if the monster is having a lot of success, the monster in either its hubris or in the heat of battle starts making poor decisions. Yeah. Now, it doesn't it doesn't stop threatening them. It just chooses a different person to threaten. All five heads could attack one character and just annihilate them. Now there are only two threats. Do that two more times and the fight's over. But instead, the heads are divided. They are fighting different characters. When one character gets knocked down, the Hydra very poorly assumes that they're no longer a threat and starts attacking someone else, like the other dragon in the group who can take a lot more damage than the Atlanteans can, and so on. So I use organic bad choices. And what's interesting is that as long as a player is being threatened at some point, the players almost never question. They almost never say, wait, why, why did the monster do that? Why would they do that? No, it's yeah. more like, oh, oh, now Sally over there is in trouble. Fortunately, the threat's off me for a second while I get up off the ground. So yeah. organically, I try to approach it. Second is fudging. If my dice are concealed 
and I often try to make them concealed. I think every good GM, every good DM who has experience has learned to conceal their dice for these reasons. If I have a concealed roll, I will roll the numbers, and then in my head, I will change them to be still, it's still got to have jeopardy, but you don't have to annihilate them in two hits. You can reduce it, right? And sometimes I'll even ask my players to roll a die as like a counter, as like a defensive maneuver, even if the system would normally not allow that. And then it gives the players a sense of having mitigated their own demise. And so fudging is the second thing I do. And then absolutely last ditch, the thing that I will do if I've done the organic thing and it's still not going well, I've fudged numbers and they're about to die, I will come up with some deus ex machina, some machine of the gods that some event or mechanism or NPC that they met previously that swoops in at the last minute and gives them a window of opportunity to retreat. Now, all of that done, what I have learned over the years also is if I have given every reasonable way for the players to succeed, I still have to honor that rule of they can also still fail because I've had players make horrible decisions. And if I open up a door for them to run away and they don't run away, then they got to die. Yeah, They have to die. Or the game loses meaning. So that's my approach. I guess I guess that fourth one is the one I avoid the most, but still has to be present. So organic, fudge, deus ex machina, death. So I agree with almost everything both of you guys have presented. And I would like to add the Platinum and Electrum rules of storytelling to the conversation. Woo! We have Are you ready to level electrum. up? Okay. Now, it's important to remember Platinum and and Electrum are much rarer than gold, silver, and copper in D&D, but we're going to continue to say bronze because I prefer bronze to copper in this case. And so it's important that you give these priority. A lot of times you're going to be called into a situation where it's the first time you're playing with new players or you've been asked to DM a pickup game or whatever it is, and in that case, stick to gold, silver, and bronze. Those are the most common elements that you need to keep in mind in order to keep the game functioning well. However, the other two that I would add to it is first, the platinum rule, the most valuable rule that you have at your disposal as a GM, is to know your players. Remember, platinum players. This is important because, again, we've identified that there are two extreme ends of this spectrum the rules lawyer, and the fitty nonsense. And if all of your players are on the fitty nonsense side, you've got a lot of tools at your disposal that can make them happy just by throwing in random chance or bluffing or just turning it into some epic outcome. But you also have tools for those players who exist at the opposite end of the spectrum. A great example of this, one of my favorite tools that came out in 5th edition D&D that I've been implementing in other systems is the idea of inspiration. Having an additional die that they can choose to use to re-roll a roll or give the better of two choices, right? This is a tool that actually works fairly well for both camps. Let's go again to our doomsday scenario, right? You're in the middle of the game. The boss has been thwomping on the players. They've just had a series of bad rolls and a player finally scores a hit. Even if it's a weak hit, this is an opportunity for you to be like, oh, as you hit, you leave a small dent in his armor. I'm going to give you an inspiration. So the next time that you need to roll, go ahead and do it. You can start to seed these kinds of things into your adventure. And if you understand these are things that are going to happen, you can begin to do that even before you get to a situation where it's needed, where you let them know, hey, there are going to be situationally specific inspiration dice that can be awarded as long as you are exploring the world or leveling up your class appropriately, playing your character, you know, role-playing with the rest of the group, whatever it is that your other players need to have a good time, this is a tool that's at your disposal. 
very similarly if you know your players well and the player gets dealt the death blow you now have an opportunity to create a deus ex machina that actually propels the story and this is where we get to the electrum rule the electrum rule is elevate your story whenever possible your tank is up there fighting the boss it's a series of bad rolls goes down the players know they are royally screwed if that paladin doesn't get back up this is an excellent opportunity to pause combat and enter roleplay. Paladin sees the life draining out of his body as his ghost rises up above his corpse, and then he feels a warm hand on his shoulder, turns around, and finds himself in the middle of a field in front of his deity. And the deity presents him with a choice. I can do one of two things for you. Sacrifice you to destroy this monster. Or I can teleport you and your friends away. But if I do introduce consequence here and allow your players to choose because again if you're giving them choices they will become invested in creating their own solutions and by association you have now elevated your story it doesn't always necessarily need to be that dramatic you can be in situations where you really 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 want to get your party into the thieves guild for example and you've done everything that you can to set them up to get to the right place and get the information and they're engaged and they're ready to go and then they just keep flubbing the roles or they miss the obvious answer these are other opportunities where if you understand how your players work, what they value as players in the game, if you understand what their objectives as characters are and what it is that enables them to have a good time, you can introduce story elements in a way that enriches the probability of them being able to come to the outcome that will be most satisfying. And in those situations, you may find that you have a table full of 50 non-centers and one rules lawyer on the other end. And you know, because that one player is the rules lawyer, it's okay for them to die. They are willing to re-roll their character, and you can create a meaningful experience, not only for them, but for the rest of your players as well. And the opposite is true. So I humbly dump that word vomit all over the internet now. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a topic for which I have a lot of passion, so I thank everybody for, for putting up for a minute. No, that was brilliant. You've got the Platinum Player Rule and the Electrum Elevate Rule. That's excellent. And I don't know where to go. I, it's like mic drop, we're done. <laughs> There's Finished. like nowhere else to go. I mean, I was joking throwing those out, but that's awesome that we have those now. Yes. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Alton just made those up on the fly after you suggested Platinum Probably. Electrum. I'm, I'm pretty sure Alton just was like, yeah, I can do that. And then he just pounded that out. That was amazing. Oh, well, let's see. Hold on. I, I got some dice here. Let me check. Uh, high <laughs> or low? <laughs> Going low. Ooh. Sorry about that. Unfortunately, it looks <laughs> like you failed your uh, I rolled <laughs> high. insight check. I rolled high. <laughs> uh, that is the, the joy of the game. It, it's always about making it fun, making it better. And that's one thing I've always stressed. Know your players. My campaign that I played for over two years with this one particular group, I got to know them so well that while I was writing the adventure, I could guess which direction they would go. I would write it out. I wouldn't write the other branch that I had in, in mind. You know, I'd have branches and I'd sit there. I'm like, okay, what are they going to pick? And I was probably 95% right. And one side was a negative. There was no real chance that they would go off on some other side tangent, but it made it a lot more fun because I could guess which direction they could go so I could put more things into that instead of kind of spreading it out. I didn't have to spread my bed across the table. That was always fun. So definitely get to know your players, uh, make it fun for them, elevate the experience for them as well. And if you do that, 
as a GM or even a player, if you're elevating the fun for your other players, it's going to be an amazing experience for you, even if it's a board game or a card game. Those are the great rules to have at the table. So really, I have nothing else to say. Elton just like completely <laughs> bombed. Yeah, I mean, he, he dropped the mic. We're, we're literally done. We are in his playground at this point. Well, so now that I've had my mic drop moment, do I get to add my tagline to the end of the episode today? Yes, you've yeah, earned but, it. But I, I, Josh, I think Josh had something else to add before we, yeah. we take out. I've been thinking about this for a few episodes now, and I and it just never seemed right to mention it, but now is a great time. If you've never watched the show The IT Crowd from the early 2000s, <laughs> yes. it, is, it is an hilarious show. It's an English show. It's a British show. Apropos to this topic. There is an episode called Jen the Fredo, F-R-E-D-O, not Frodo, the Fredo. And the idea is that these rather difficult, politically non-correct business guys that are friends of their CEO, who's also just a terrible human being, are coming into town. And now it's their job to entertain these business folk. And they have to do a good job and their jobs are on the line, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in this episode, you have Jen taking the guys to like theater and other stuff. But then Moss jumps in with a D&D campaign. And at first blush, you would think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> if you watch that episode purely, purely for the D&D scenes, if you just cut out the rest of the stuff and you watch this while satirical, it is also a golden example of everything that we've spoken of, of everything that we've covered gorgeously represented in this episode. In fact, I don't know if I need to avoid spoilers in a show that's 15 years old, but but the D&D role-playing scenario is used to help Moss's best friend work through a real-world, difficult, emotional situation. And hilarity ensues, but it's also just brilliant. So Jen the Fredo, which I believe is like third season or fourth season of IT Crowd, Watch it. Feel free to skip the other nonsense, but watch everything that has to do with Moss and Roy and D&D. Some other great ones. Community, when the D&D episode. Yes. Community. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. That's, that's a, a great episode. episode. Uh, there are some great examples out there. So check those out. But pay attention to the rules. Gold, silver, bronze, bronze. You know, the platinum and electrum. You won't be steered wrong. So with that said, we're out of here. And friends. Tell your story, whatever may come. And remember, Internet, be epic and don't suck. Remember, the Force will be with you always.